When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Off Talkle Empire, all we're saying, Paul, is we don't even know who Georgia's played to be ranked up that high. Put those boys in the Big Ten, the week in and week out, they're just elite team after elite team. Ah, hang on, the brats are done. I'm going to let you go there, Paul. Hey, on Off Talkle Empire. Your source for Big Ten talk, it's Off Tackle Empire. Welcome back to Off Talkle Empire, the only podcast that dares to ask the question, should we even really consider the SEC a power five conference anymore? I mean, it's just it's just one team at the top, right? You call it big one, little 13 is what we like to call it, okay? Because you just, that's the first question that we have is should the SEC even be a power conference? And the other question is, do the divisions in the SEC need to be rebalanced, okay? Because look, you got nobody in the West. Never do. Okay, meanwhile in the East, you got you've got Georgia and you've got Kentucky and you've got Florida that are all really highly ranked. I mean at some point it's just embarrassing for the conference. Uh, of course, again, I don't know why we're leading off talking about second tier athletic conferences, but you know, we we've been criticized for the narrow scope of our Big Ten podcast in the past, so we're we're gonna we're gonna throw we're gonna throw you a bone here. Yeah, dogs. Well, after, after all, we're only trying to keep up in depth commentary on fourteen damn teams. We may as well go a little bit broader. We're gonna throw you a bone there, you bulldogs. Yeah, but look, we I, I, there's an argument to be made that perhaps not all four playoff teams should be from the Big Ten this year, but I, I don't know who's going to make it. I don't know who is reasonably making that argument right now. I, wait, I don't know how Georgia, with the schedule they've played, would stack up against any Big Ten opponent you could play them against. It's just they don't face the same depth. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, of course, you got a tough game that they have against, like, a Clemson in the non-conference, which was a courageous no, thing no, for hold them on. to let's, let's, let's talk about that, though. That's playing an unranked ACC team that's basically exactly. going to be a 5 Exactly. Five. I mean, you can't hold it against them for trying, but the fact of the matter is they didn't aim for the very top. Still, still not leaving their region. That's barely an hour drive from their campus. You're going to have them play Florida, okay, and that's going to, you know, they're going to be able to get up for that, but you're talking about a situation where you're in the Big Ten East. You play Penn State. You play Michigan. You play Michigan. Every week it's like the Super Bowl in there. And also Maryland, but, you know... It, Everybody's got a, a... Well, look, some people had to play Maryland before October. Right. <laughs> and and that's obviously a much different thing. So, short slate for us to discuss this week. This is always a fun time of the season because it's actually kind of possible to keep an eye on all the games if you're so inclined. It's a very depressed look Moon is giving me because I'm not petting her anymore, but she's the one who went over on the other side of the room, so... Oh, well, if you see what's down on the lower part of her legs, those are naturally occurring White Sox, and she's just depressed that she doesn't get to cheer him on for another day here. Who knows, they might be eliminated by the time that this gets uh, 
this gets published, but... Well, wait a minute. No, I'm going to publish it to... I'm going to, I'm going to publish it for Tuesday, so no. The White Sox are going to even the series here. That's, that's, that's where I am as far as college football is right now. I really need to pull a Holly Anderson route and just not just, watch my team anymore. Just relying on Tony LaRusso to save your sports fandom. <laughs> I'm sure that would go very well in the year of our Lord 2021. Very good, very good, very good. So, you've homecomed, I home came. That's all done. That, that time of the year is basically over with. Again, as we, said, as we mentioned, kind of a short conference slate to get through here, but... We'll still find a way to stretch it into an hour, I'm sure. So I guess I didn't ask you how your homecoming was besides the game. I assume that you really enjoyed the game. I don't know how all the other things were. I don't really know what all you go back there for. Well, it's it's a much different experience for me because most of my college friends do not go back. They're just they're all over the place. Nobody goes back for homecoming, really. I wasn't in a fraternity, so I don't have that tie to go to. My sister still lives in Lansing, so I can see her. But it was basically... Went into town, gathered up the family I was taking to the game, went to the game, and then left. And because it was a night game, and because, look, Michigan State has deprioritized, if not outright, attempted to murder tailgating since well before I was paying attention to college sports. It's a terrible experience. The lots are all horribly diffused. I went, and I was, there wasn't even anybody, I didn't, I guess they don't allow tailgating on the tennis courts anymore, which... When wow. I was a student there, is the only place that had any activity worth noting. They don't let people on the tennis courts anymore. So it's never been a good tailgating experience while I've been there. It still isn't now because I don't have friends. It's really like there's not much to it because I, I didn't even go the night before, so it's not like I saw the parade or anything. It was just a game that I went to where the – also, you know what? The marching band had the alumni band come back, and it was the 50th anniversary of establishing that, so that was pretty cool. But that was the only thing that differentiated it from a normal game. Yeah, so you and I had the opposite experiences because mm-hmm. the whole time I was at, at homecoming, I was just so happy to be there. Uh, Love being back on campus. Um, yeah, of course, I'm in a, in a social engineering fraternity that's renovating their house. It's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, just happy to see a lot of people that I don't get to see all that often. Um Back in a lot of the familiar places, the tailgating was amazing. The crowd was fantastic. Beautiful day. Everything about it was great, except the football team. It's like uh, building a building a brand new mall, and the anchor tenants never moved in. And it's like uh, you know, it's been like this for for yeah, quite a while. And food court's pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, and it's beautiful architecture Water in here. Features are real good. And, <clears throat> and there's some pretty cool. There's some pretty cool like independent little inline shops opening up here that are drawing like a lot of crowd. It's just Hmm. Gonna get an anchor tenant one of these days now. It's just funny. I just, we had to, then I had, to, I had to spend the rest of my weekend trying to just enjoy being in Champaign and not think about the whole football thing. But problem was I was, I was very bitter end. Everybody that was around me left. Um, but okay, let's get back to Michigan State Rutgers. State yeah. Spartakers. So I'm going to sound insufferable saying this, but a three-score conference win on the road. But early on, it really did feel like Mel Tucker was going to make just enough mistakes to let Rutgers be in a position to steal the win. On the opening drive of the game, Michigan State faked a field goal. It was an obvious fake. It was like a fourth and six or something, too. And they just had the punter pick it up and run. And Behringer's a good player. He's not the kind of guy you're going to put it in his hands and expect him to grab the first down like that. It was a weird call. It gave Rutgers basically a shot in the eyeball of adrenaline because they immediately marched down and scored a touchdown. I was like, ah, crap, here we go. But to their credit, they very much stayed themselves after that. Rutgers really had 
two drives at the beginning of the game and one drive towards the end where they were able to move the ball. And other than that, they couldn't do anything against Michigan State's defense, which was a good sign. Now, granted, Bill Melton was out, and then later in the game, Aaron Crookshank got hurt, and I think Noah Vedral either got hurt or was pulled as well. So a Rutgers offense that already didn't have a whole lot of firepower was very much lacking on that front. But Michigan State, once again, shut down their run pretty well. Again, aside from that first couple drives, Rutgers didn't really have anything going. And then just a historic day, a historic half, really, that was a historic full day for Jalen Naylor, who had three touchdowns of longer than 60 yards. Ended up, I believe, two, I forget, you know what? I should probably look because I want to get this right. 221 yards on five catches for three touchdowns, and he had four of those catches in the first half. So I ask you, as a little trivia question, this is a game at Rutgers. Whose single-game stadium record do you think he broke? Ah. I forgot. I probably should have been fair to even mention that it was on the road because you came back with Charles Rogers. I was like, I right, well, so he probably thinks I'm talking Spartan Stadium. No, um, it, it was Larry Fitzgerald from his days at Pitt when they played Rutgers in the Big East. I think back in like 2001, two, three, something like that. So whenever you able, whenever you bump Fitzgerald's name out of a spot on the record book, you've done something pretty remarkable. And he's been kind of the oh and him guy in Michigan State's offense after Jaden Reed and Kenneth Walker. But after this game, if you look at the receiving stats, he and Jaden Reed are almost identical. I think it's the same number of receptions. They're within like five or ten yards of each other. I think Naylor now has one more touchdown, but they are it's it's a one and one A and it's a great spot to be in because who do you concentrate on if you're a defense? Well, Rutgers decided not to let Jaden Reed beat them, and he didn't, but Jalen Naylor sure did. And then, just as a side thought, you know, Kenneth Walker also went for 230 yards on the ground and cracked off the longest play from scrimmage in Michigan State history, 94 yards. <clears throat> so it's, I mean, it's, it's uh, kind of tough to know what exactly to concentrate on because they, Michigan State has just enough weapons to move the ball in a variety of ways, but while they don't... It, I hesitate to say that they don't have what you'd call like nationally elite options. The fact is, having a versatile array of options that are, you know, pretty good for the Big Ten allows both of them to succeed a lot. I'm talking, of course, about um, the passing game and Kenneth Walker on the ground. I wouldn't take anyone's weapons other than Ohio State. I mean, I'm not going to claim that they're better than the Buckeyes, but at least at the top shelf, like again, they don't. Their third option, Trey Mosley, is pretty good. You know, Jackson Smith and Jigba's probably better. And Ohio State's offensive line is certainly better. The quarterback thing is tough to is tough to evaluate because it's always. I mean, Stroud really impressed me with some of the throws he made. We'll get into that game in just a minute. But yeah, it, I I don't know what else you can really expect. Because again, this even without a ninety four yard rush, I think Walker was still getting something like seven yards a carry, and that's with an offensive line that's really not the strength of the team. They sequence their play calls well. They get the tight ends involved just enough that that's a change of pace. Thorne runs it a little bit. It's This is a very difficult offense to defend when it's working. I am still concerned that against better defensive fronts, and they'll see a couple in the next couple games, that we saw against Nebraska, sometimes if they can't block anything, nothing works. And hopefully that was a one-off thing and they found some way around it. But it really might just be a thing of, look, this offensive line has a certain ceiling, and if the defensive front is better, what are you going to do? Well, the thing is, <clears throat> Nebraska's defense is not that much better than Rutgers um, from a statistical standpoint. 
Nebraska certainly is better and has been improving throughout the course of the year, but they're more in the Rutgers tier than they are in the Penn State, Wisconsin, Iowa tier. Yeah. Um, Wisconsin, for all of the, we'll get to them, for all of the, um, you know, memes about them this year, their defense is one of the very best in the country. Yeah. Yeah, and the one thing I will say is Rutgers was missing a couple guys in the secondary, and it very much showed. Uh, obviously, you don't let a guy get loose for three sixty-plus yard touchdowns if you're not if you don't have some issues. Although I will get some. I don't remember if it was the second or the third one, but I want to nail his touchdowns. He made a fantastic play because he made sort of an over-the-shoulder catch heading towards the sideline. Two defenders had him bracketed. But I probably assumed that he was going to do the thing almost all receivers do in that situation, which is just catch and go out of bounds. But no, he stopped on a dime and then reverse fields and ran another 30 or so yards for the touchdown. So uh, I really like that little wrinkle from him because yeah, like most receivers would catch it and be like, all right, well, you can't hit me because I'm going out of bounds. But no, he wanted the touchdown and he got it. So not much to complain about, really. Um, the fake field goal was weird. They mismanaged the clock at the end of the first half. It's not the first time they've done that. That's something that really, that's entirely on the coaches. That ought to be correctable. Um, but yeah, I, well, I guess the running theme here, and this is, I said this after the Nebraska game, after the Western Kentucky game, Michigan State's been able to win games where they don't, and Tucker said this, I think again this week, that he doesn't feel like they've played their best game yet, and they haven't, like not even close. They probably, I would say their Miami game was probably like an A-, minus B plus, but they have a ceiling yet that they haven't hit, which Ideally, they will manage on October 30th. Spooky season. <clears throat> Spooky, scary skeletons send shivers down your spine. Some of them also play for Ohio State. I accept full responsibility here for squinting at the Ohio State blueprints earlier this season and thinking maybe I saw an unsecured exhaust port, and that that's my bad. I Right here. Totally incorrect on that one. So... We, and maybe it was a little bit of wishful thinking, too, right? Because when they pulled Stroud for, what was it, a game or two with a little bit of a shoulder thing, it was like, oh, maybe that's a pretext. Maybe they're maybe they're going to trick themselves into looking up and down and causing a quarterback controversy. And nope, came back, laid waste to Maryland the same way they blitzed Rutgers last week. Well, and, not to mention, of course, you know, these concerns on the defense seem to be getting better with every week. So the upshot is... We'll see about that. That I'm less sure about because... This is, and again, the Tungle Vailoa for solar football thing is, is probably going to go down as one of my worst propositions. And let's not pretend Rutgers has anything to threaten him on offense. But I, I get your point. You were saying. Um, the upshot is that, uh, oh, I'm afraid that the Ohio State secondary will be quite operational when your Jadens and Jalens arrive. Yeah, that kind of sucks that we have to play <laughs> Got a lot of young guys on defense. It is undoubtedly going to be much better by the time we play them. <sighs> so, uh, there was some exchange in, in some article that we were crowdsourcing on the Slack where somebody was saying, you know, it's about the time of year for Ohio State to start eating people. To which you pointed out, what are they, are they not already doing that? I was like, what about this pile of Maryland and Rutger bones here? And so, like, yeah, I mean, I get that they're not. They're they're probably both going to be at the bottom of the division this year, but they're still decent teams. Uh, and in a, is, you know, in a really unique weekend of college football, there were also a lot of things that are just 
incredibly familiar, such as Ohio State puts up 66 points in 600 yeah, yards of offense. That's 118 points in two weeks. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's pretty bleak. Um, I thought that uh, I'm gonna, I don't remember what measure it was by. It was total yards or scoring average or what, but there was something that said this Ohio State offense is on track to be the best in school history. After like, get, 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 <laughs> that, that mark we've seen the last couple weeks. Like, that mark's just becoming meaningless to me. Like, I guess, but it, at some point, it's like, can you really average 450 passing yards a game and 300 rushing? Like, it, you had this just, thing a few years ago. Where of course, it was like. Well, okay, who's going to finish with... Well, no, no. Baker Mayfield has shattered the records for, what, adjusted net yards per attempt with over 13. And then <laughs> oh, yeah. Tua Tagovailoa and uh, Kyler Murray were both over 14. And then Joe Burrow... Was like what was that? Or 17 like, or something? Yeah. No, where it's just... Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on anymore. So, uh, I mean, the Maryland offense did okay moving the ball all things considered but came up with a yeah. lot of empty possessions Dis- despite this final score Maryland did give him a game for a little while but it also kind of felt like once they ran out of the scripted stuff there just there wasn't a whole lot more there losing your biggest passing game weapon is a a really good way to turn some drives into empty possessions it is and this is I don't know that Loxley as head coach is ever going to have a good answer for the team that can out-athlete him across the board. And we've commented this on the... It's kind of a lazy take on our part because we could go a little deeper into his X's and O's and stuff, but well, if you just look at the plays that they run, like in particular, their mo- what I think of as kind of their signature rushing play is the running back sweep out of the shotgun. That relies on your running back being faster than the linebackers. The that's, other not thing gonna, is, that's never going to happen for Maryland against Ohio State. And the other thing is that... And this has gone back for as you know as long as I've been familiar with him. The only time that Mike Loxley has ever coached a good red zone offense has been at Alabama when he had first rounders across the O line. He had uh, and Najee Harris, right? Yeah. So I don't know if it was Najee Harris, but it was somebody that was picked in the first round. I mean, Maryland is going to put up. They put up 335 yards. They got 22 first downs. They came up with 17 points. They, they, they rely a lot on explosive plays, which they can make with these good athletes, even against good defenses. But, again, the kind of signature run play you described, that's not something that you really want to see when you're snapping the ball from the opponent's eight or whatever. Yeah, they also, it's a little bit of an and this might have been also just because of game pace, but they added a third component to the running back room and split their carries up even more. Again, last year, it really felt like they hit their best stride when... Jake Funk was the guy they were lying, or this was two years ago. Um, or was it just last year? I, what even is time? Um, the best running game, in any way, in recent memory that they've had was when basically Jake Funk was their workhorse, and that just seemed to work better with the way their offense flowed. But anyway, here's something that I want to posit to you at this point, which is that it perhaps Maryland is the anti-Northwestern in that they have boatloads of athletic talent that they consistently underperform with, and they always get out to very fast starts and then turn to absolute dog shit. And again, I get that we're talking about good Northwestern, like your more typical Northwestern of the last decade, not what we're seeing this year. Although, I will say this, they will play their best game of the year at the very end. Probably even the week before that, they'll look a lot better than they do now. Uh, whether or not they have a good season, that's going to end up being true. They, yeah. they always do end up playing... Even when they are playing badly at the end of the season, they are always playing better than they were at the beginning. Well, regardless of 
what Illinois' defense does and what Northwestern's track is, Evan Hull is a live JMC pick that last week of the season. No mistake. So, speaking of things that were uh, utterly familiar, Wisconsin, 24, Illinois, nothing. Well, not so much the shutout being familiar, because if you can believe this, this was my first Illinois shutout I've ever been to. Did you, do you happen to know, like, when was the last time that happened to them at home? Oh, it was 2018. I track this a lot because, you know, I can't track things like wins or bowl games or anything like that. So yeah. points of pride, you know, I really like not getting shut out, right? It's a good feeling. In a really, out, yeah. yeah. So in a really bleak like 2017 season, we went we, you know, we lost every Big Ten game as we are wont to do, but we didn't get shut out. Okay, so that was really great. And then we got 63 to nothing against, against Iowa. Now this one was not quite that bad, but uh, it felt about as bleak on offense. Um, the familiar part of this game, though, why it felt so much like every other game was Wisconsin wasn't going to throw the ball until third down, but it didn't matter because third down never came. Yeah, I w- you know. I'll give you defense some credit here, though, because Wisconsin, first of all, ran 80 plays, and 61 of those were runs. Um, so, inevitably, that's going to wear you down after a while. It was all it, it was a weird approach to me from Wisconsin a little bit because their pass game obviously needs a lot of work if they're going to be any good over the rest of the season. But I can also see how, from Chris's perspective, that really the run game has not been working that well either. Like, it's kind of just been okay, which is not what Wisconsin needs for this whole thing to work. They came into this game 1-3 and three with a win against Eastern Michigan. And yes, I know that their three losses were to teams that recruit at a national title level, but you're talking about college kids here that can easily get down on this. So I could definitely see the approach of, hey, let's win a game. Let's do what we do. Let's do what we want to do. Run the ball. Dictate the tempo. Um... You know, what they what I'm sure they weren't counting on was Illinois having the worst quarterbacks in Division One just coming out in the fucking air raid. Yeah. This before we get into the Illinois side, I just one last note on Wisconsin. I will say I think this season should be the end of this notion that, oh, really you can put any running back in Wisconsin's offense and they're gonna be great. This offensive line on paper has every bit of the talent in the NFL potential that their historic lines have had, like Beach, Bruss. Um, Tatum Lyles, these are pretty well-regarded players. Um, you never can tell when a given group of guys is not going to quite step up the way you expect them to. I'll tell you who you can't plug into that situation at Wisconsin running back anymore is Jalen Berger, because he going... Yeah. I didn't read much in the way of details on that. He, The team announced he was dismissed, and based on what our Wisconsin folks are telling us, Sounds like he kind of didn't handle not being the top dog that well, and it, it's unclear if he actually did anything in specific. Or was I wasn't one, monitoring his Twitter during the game. If it was one, right, we didn't get a fuck with two C's Wisconsin, so at least that bar has not quite been topped yet. Shout out to Kayvon Pope, wherever you are, you are a fucking legend. Um, but yeah, so it's not clear if he actually did anything specifically that got him kicked off. It was just like, dude, we're, that's enough, get out of here. Uh, but either way, that's, I mean, that seemed to be a story where everything was set up. Like, boy, you talked about a guy, like, his recruiting profile from a ranking perspective was very similar to Jonathan Taylor's, another guy from New Jersey. It was all, it, it was too easy, right, to assume that he's going to be the next guy yeah. and everything's going to be copacetic. And you never can tell. And it's the same thing with Graham Mertz, which was, again, 
most talented quarterback recruit in Wisconsin history, Blue Chip. Sure had a pretty good debut game, and then really since that point, it's just been nothing but bad. But then, I mean, he gets hurt in this game, and now the question really, because Wisconsin's quarterbacks have not exactly inspired confidence, so it's like, man, it, it's an interesting situation to be in where it's like, yeah, the guy's not very good, but we don't have anything else, and we do need to throw the ball a little bit, or at least pretend to. Like, you're not just going to do what Baylor did in that bowl game and run the Wildcat all game. Yeah. Um, another side, of course, uh, you know, what I said in previewing this game was that kind of our only chance was to, you know, shorten the game, just stay in the game by running the ball and making sure they can't ever get too far out in front, even if all we're doing is battling for field position. I hear what you're saying. So we're coming out just throwing it all the what, time. What if you were to throw on about three quarters of your offensive plays? What if, and hear me out, you have some of the worst quarterbacks I've ever seen in Illinois. It's a high bar to clear. And we came out in the shotgun like virtually every play in the first quarter was from the shotgun. We got an interception at our own three-yard three line. And, hey, look, it's three wide receivers. Brandon Peters standing in the middle of his own end zone in the shotgun. It, it, the whole crowd knew that this was a mistake. Damn near got a safety. But, uh, yeah, it was amazing. You got the reigning Big Ten Player of the Week in Chase Brown. He gets three carries. Uh, he took one for five yards in the first quarter. He and got, then He got eight. Oh, eight carries. McCray, McCray, got, McCray got two carries. Yeah. Still, eight carries for Chase Brown. Yeah. Now, he took his second carry, which came... With 2.45 left in the second quarter, for 23 yards for Illinois' first first down that didn't come by a Wisconsin penalty. There's a point in this game where I just kept looking at the scoreboard, and they had about 430 offensive yards to our 40, and uh, they had around 70 penalty yards, and we had four first downs and three were by penalty. So they had more, Wisconsin had more penalty yards than we had offensive yards. Uh, it's really incredible when you can lose a game like like this this badly when you don't commit a single penalty, you don't commit a single turnover. It's really just incredible, and you punt pretty well too. Incredibly efficient beating is what it was. Yes, but not quite a gentleman's blowout because we declined to take a field goal late in the game, went for it on fourth and eight, and I'm just I mm, I mean no. I'm mostly alone in uh, section 106 by this point, and I'm just screaming, take the points. Kick the field goal. James McCord's mustache looked fantastic. He deserves an opportunity in this game. Art Setkowski's done quite enough. He missed his first 12 passes after coming in for for uh, Brandon Peters. Oh, man. Yeah, mm. we'll consider Don't this. know if I should uh, address the problematic Brandon Peters-related chant I heard. It wasn't Brandon no, Peters-related. Let's, let's not do that. Um, Brandon, so it Brandon, wasn't Brandon Peters-related. Right. We're so anyway. I wanna, Brandon, um, Brandon Peters went 3-for-7 for 12 yards, and he had a QBR 8 points higher than Sitkowski. Well, Brandon Peters should have been picked 6 by Fayon Hicks near his own end zone. Uh, Sitkowski should have probably been housed several times. He was drilling linebackers in the chest. Uh, Sitkowski went 8 for 27. We went 11 for 34 passing. And I'm just wondering, why did we run the ball 12 times with the worst quarterbacks in Division I? Um, I mean, I mean we, we didn't try to run the ball until we were out of the game. Yeah, it's just, uh, you, like you said, you, you don't see many games where the home team wins the turnover mark battle 2-0, to zero, the opponent throws for 100 yards on the nose, and it's a blowout in the road team's favor. It's just a, it's a difficult thing to do. I'm not saying that they could have won the game. It's just that you would like to see offensive strategy that's coherent, offensive strategy that kind of acknowledges some of the personnel that you have to work with. 
and maybe acknowledges the kind of game that you're going to have to play to win, which again, an ugly game with a very low score where you're just, you're often, the purpose of your offense is to run down clock and set up your punter in this game. I mean, I'm, I'm serious about that because all we needed to do was take, you know, for the long time of this game, it would just take one fumble ret- return to the house to make it a game. Yeah, and and that was that was by far the best opportunity we had to score was if something like that had happened. Well, the good news even is, by the standards of Illinois games on offense, that was hard to watch. You have any idea how hard, how high a bar it is to say worst offensive performance I've ever seen by Illinois football? It really does make you think, man. The good news is now we can talk about the two actually good games. Saturday that happened in the conference. I want to. I do want to first circle back to something I think I mentioned in our pre-show thing, which was that, you know, like I said, I was just overjoyed to be there, and uh, I, I mentioned all the things I loved about going there for homecoming, how great the tailgating was. You know, the band was playing the was was playing our two fight songs, one of which has a damn key change in it. The student section was full. I don't know how they keep doing this. And then I snapped a, you know, I did a panorama. The crowd was great. I snapped a picture as they were coming out to take the first snap of the game, and I thought to, I thought to myself, I'm so happy. I should leave. I should leave right now and not look back. <laughs> I should just, I'm not going to get happier than this. This is the happiest I'm going to be today. I should just leave. I should leave before they have an opportunity. Such, such, <laughs> is, such is the inevitable nature of fandom, though, right? Because although your, although your frontal cortex and the higher thinking parts of your brain were like, this is going to be a really bad experience, we're going to lose badly, your lizard brain was saying, but what if you beat them again? Like, and, and you didn't, you didn't want to leave and then miss that kind of game. That's, that's what the fan always thinks when you're sitting in the stands. I really just wanted to hear what the crowd would sound like if we got a field goal or a touchdown. <laughs> but it cleared out before I had the chance. And we still don't have the chance because... Here's, here's my worry, okay? We face only good defenses from here on out. We scored our last touchdown against a Big Ten opponent on September 17th. What if that's the last time we do it? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, I'll bite. Hold on. Let's go through this exercise here. So the rest of the way, Illinois, by virtue of the Week 0 game, has already played 7. 2-5 and five record overall. Um, at Penn State, that could easily be a shutout. Later in the season, at Iowa, that could easily be a shutout. Those are two that are on the caliber of Wisconsin defense. Wise. Other three, you've got Rutgers at home, Minnesota on the road, Northwestern at home. Those all profile roughly like Purdue, who, again, held us out of the end zone. 
I think almost accidentally, you're you're bound to. I I gotta emphasize. Okay, how about offensive touchdown? Will you give me that? It's possible. It's possible. I still really don't think Minnesota's defense is very good. I think at some point, I know I know Bielema has completely lost your confidence, but he's gotta see what works and what doesn't, right? You know, you at say some, that, at some but point, no, he doesn't. <laughs> he won two games. He's safe for the year. He doesn't have to do shit, and he won't. I just think so. You're you're talking about. So this is excluding the Charlotte game. That was the last, or are you? I'm, I'm talking about Big Ten games. Oh, so yeah, Big excluding Ten. Excluding the Charlotte. So, so he didn't score a touchdown against didn't Purdue. Didn't score against Purdue. Didn't score a touchdown against Wisconsin. So you, you're talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven conference games without a touchdown. That's difficult to do. Like it is. The worst Rutgers teams didn't do that. The worst Hazel teams didn't do that. No, they didn't. We're. I'd be curious to see if the 2016 Rutgers team did that, but point is, that's what we're talking about. Because the Hazel teams were never quite that bad on offense, but they were much worse on defense. Yeah, so I'm not going to rule it out, okay? Because I spent the first couple weeks, I got clucking my tongue at you, it's not that bad, you're going to get a few wins here. And yeah, 2-10 is very much a possibility, if not a likelihood. It's a lot. Rutgers and Northwestern are both pretty damn bad, man. You're going to have a real shot in both of those games. Rutgers is not as bad as Northwestern. I that's Dude, that's going to depend on who Rutgers gets back. If they miss all the guys who are missing by the end of the Michigan State game, that offense is powerless. Okay, let's talk about actual football. Yeah. Um, so we'll jump out of line time-wise a little bit here uh, and do Michigan and Nebraska next. And before we get to the substance, holy shit, were the refs in this game inexcusable? That sequence in the second quarter of about four minutes of game time took like 45 minutes of actual time because three consecutive plays they had to review and overturn themselves because they were just so blindingly obviously wrong. They gave Michigan a touchdown when McNamara kneeled before he completed the handoff. No touchdown because they're all racing in to be the first one to signal a touchdown for Michigan. Are you kidding me with that shit? That, and then going the other direction, unless you think that I'm just complaining about calls for Michigan, no. <laughs> Probably the worst spot I've ever seen watching football. They missed the spot by a full three yards because they get, threw a flag for, I think, an illegal formation before the snap, or a 12-man, or something like that. There's some procedural penalty, but the play went and the play counted, and Michigan was shorted like a full three yards on the spot. It was, like, impossibly bad. For... A, and again, this is after, man, I didn't touch on this because it ended up not mattering that much, and I try not to complain about the refs, but the ones in the Michigan State Rutgers game were also terrible. And it's just like, the only guy whose people whose name people know anymore at our conference is O'Neal, because he's the one who's been there a while, but the other, other two crews that I paid a good amount of attention to, abysmal. And for a conference that has the resources the Big Ten does, I've seen conflicting information about whether officials are actually paid pretty well or not. I don't know if they are, but I think it is still very much the case that they're not full-time. I told you right that I used to work with a guy who officiated college football games on the weekend, just like as a hobby. Really? Yeah, he was. I think he was either a side judge or an end judge in the Alabama-Georgia title game. Wow. I, it, it, I have to give myself some credit here because in just a straight jacket of professionalism, I refused to bring it up because he never mentioned it. And somebody else had told me about it, and I would be like, 
dude, I heard you at the fucking title game. That's incredible. Tell me all about it. I managed not to, and now I work at a different company, so I missed my chance. Maybe I'll look that guy up again and bother him now. <laughs> um, I don't want dick ride. But anyway, he had a very, he obviously had a very different job during the week, and the amount of money that's involved here, we've basically given up pretending that it's amateur athletics anymore. Whether the athletics are amateur or not, the officiating doesn't have to be. Exactly. These guys get full-time reps, have them do that year-round. You know what? If you're really not concerned about the financial side of it, you can probably have the same people know the rules of football and basketball, right? Like, you can yeah. use the same people to... Re- and then we can super hate them because they'll be calling both charges against guys who are, who have not yet, who are not committing offensive fouls and, and also bullshit P.I., and then these guys will just end up dead and we get new refs every couple years. So, the thing is, if the Big Ten is capable of keeping Rutgers athletics afloat, surely they can get some professional refs. You know how much money we've loaned Maryland since they joined the conference? Like, yeah, we've got the ca- we've got the cash. <laughs> of course, I think once we fix that, then there's another thing I think that needs to happen, which is a, a whole cultural shift for officials and replay review, which will start with making replay review, putting it all in the hands of the coaches, but punishing them for missing. Yeah. So that you only want to challenge something that's important. But the problem is, I think, that a lot of refs are just trained to call things on the field, not to be accurate, but to preserve replay review ability. Yeah, Which is why you have yeah. have people just like, oh, okay, let's just assume it's a fumble when I know oh, for yeah, sure yeah, it yeah. wasn't, but maybe we can, re- you know, you got to preserve replay review ability instead of calling it accurately on the field. Yeah, you're, you're totally right about that. Because then the problem becomes, Booth see, still seem very reluctant to overturn something. They view, they basically, they come at it like they're an appellate court, where it's like, well, you know, the officials on the field are the best positioned individuals to be finders of fact. Oh, of We're course. just, we are only reviewing for clear error, like... Of course, if the game were to flow faster and you just don't have time to go to all these reverse angles and stuff, then you can deal with more human refs as long as, uh, you know, as long as the game kind of keeps flowing. But that can never happen because that's not valuable for selling ad space. Right. So it, all this feeds into each other. And again, it's, you know, to, kind of, to circle back to the homecoming thing, right? Michigan State's homecoming was a night game. It was a very nice day. Michigan State had just come off of a dramatic, exciting win over Nebraska the week before. Before that, they had beaten Miami on the road. Big-time surprise upset. Excellent game. Excitement around the program is very high. Exciting new coach. The offense is fun to watch. There were probably between six and 8,000 empty seats in Spartan Stadium for homecoming because the experience is degraded by everything about how they run it. Letting TV executives, while well, they're pawns on the field, dictate the pace of play. Having these officials that caught... I mean, the, the, the interruption in the flow of this game was ridiculous. Because, of course, after that sequence of three plays in a row, Michigan throws a bomb and sets themselves up. Because Nebraska's... Like, the flow of the game is completely disrupted. And it just... It's seriously harming. And they've already got a problem with attendance. The at-home experience is already dunking on going to a stadium, paying a fortune, driving long distances, paying for parking and food, crappy food, crappy restrooms. You have to watch that game. So during the commercial breaks, you're just sitting there staring into space because nothing is happening. You can't flip to anything else. No, oh, I don't. No I don't even get. I don't even get reception in Memorial Stadium. 
I would actually say the Wi-Fi at Spartan Stadium when I was there was better than it has ever been in the past, in my experience. But they limited you to two beers per ID, which was which was crazy, and it was also kind of cool because we just had enough people in our group that you know we were basically able to get as much beer as anybody wanted because some people didn't want to drink that much, but still, it's like then the only thing you can really do during these. TV timeouts lasting up to five minutes is go get more beer if you can't look up the other score to the stadium. I remember being at the Mac title game once and streaming UCF versus USF <laughs> yeah. during the TV timeouts on my on our phone. And that was tight. But, uh, <laughs> looking forward to getting back to that this year, man. Oh um, yeah. But, but not so, before anyway. we not before we hit Ypsilanti on a Tuesday. Yeah. Long, ah, yes. Long tangent there. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Michigan, Jim Harbaugh called this a Clint Eastwood win because apparently Clint Eastwood came from behind with field goals a lot before telling Nebraska to get off his plane. <laughs> right. So all that being said, and I, that's, I feel like we've had a similar rant in the recent future, but every time there's a new angle on this, I'm going to revisit it because like, this is a problem for college athletics. I don't know if they realize it because get all the TV money you want. Eventually, you're going to have a lesson, you're going to have less engaged customer bases. And as we've commented on many times, college football's pursuit of the casual fan, I don't think is actually getting them any casual fans. I think the people they're conning into watching the playoff games are people who already like college sports. That population is going to shrink if you keep treating them so badly. I mean, and that being said, you know, that, that is also more evidence for, for my stance, which is that kind of the, the, the lesser half or more of Power 5 is going to have to get cut off because... To my point, um, I might say you can't really bolster the uh, the viewing experience of everything, and you can't make everything palatable for TV because the casual fan isn't going to watch Illinois at home against Rutgers. But yeah, I imagine the powers that be will say, yeah. So then, why are Illinois and Rutgers in the same conference as Ohio State? Ohio State should move conferences, and that's what's going to end up happening. That's what's already happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's so what happened with Texas and Oklahoma. But that's 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 how college sports will react to that. Is they're just going to cut out a lot of things, and 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 you're lucky to have Mel Tucker in such a critical time because you guys were below the cut line, probably still are, just by sheer volume of resources. If we're if we're looking at it that way. Um, but it's going to be a very critical time. I mean, we, we've already missed the bus by miles, but uh, it's going to be a very critical time for everybody that's hanging out on the periphery of of uh, being important in college football. Yeah. So, anyway, all that being said, really good game. Um, it did turn out that my abiding dislike for Michigan could not be overpowered by how much of a jackass Scott Frost was. Last week and many times in the past, I, I was still mentally hoping that Nebraska would win this game while it was happening. I was like, all right, well, I guess there's nothing they could do to overpower my dislike of Michigan. Um, Nebraska's temperamentality really seems to be baked into the program at this point. Because, of course, this is another game. It, it's tied late. They have the ball. They've, been, they've got most of the momentum. The, the second half, Nebraska dominated. Michigan made just enough counter punches to be in a position to pull it off. Uh, they scored 22 points in the third quarter, did Nebraska. Yeah, after being shut out in the first half. And really, the whole first half, they did very little on offense. And it seemed like they were determined to keep the ball out of Martinez's hands. I think he attempted like seven passes. Let's go with ESPN game flow here. So, uh, late in the third, you have Michigan with what ESPN call a 90.3% chance to win this game. Up 19-7 uh, as 
Nebraska began a drive at their own 25. So that's a 90.3% chance to win this game. Nebraska comes storming back, takes some control of the game, and then, as, you know, coming up with some empty possessions as Michigan takes the lead on field goals, which just goes to show you how the fact that they took the lead on two field goals, not a touchdown, goes to show you just how... Um, mercurial this offense can be. Yeah, and you know, both coaches passed on makeable field goals early in the game, and I commented in the Slack conversation that we were having with our co-writers, uh, you were you were having fun, like actual fun, um, I said, you know, this, or maybe it was in the game, Fred, but either way, I pointed out, I was like, you know, this really feels like a game where every point's gonna count. I don't know about leaving, it's always, it, it's, a decision that's easy to kind of Monday morning or Monday evening, as the case is, quarterback a little bit. Because I understand wanting to give a vote of confidence to your offense and the touchdown really gets the crowd into it. But I still think you want, first of all, I always think you want to be the first to score in a game like this, even if it is a field goal. And it just it felt like early on the defenses were really in control. And there ended up being some points on the board here. But, yeah, it just felt like a game where every touch, every point was going to matter. And both coaches passed up on it. Um, but look, as the game went on, Frost, to his credit, has now shown a little bit of a trend in making really good halftime adjustments. They called up some pretty damn nifty pass plays. A lot of them worked pretty well. They got Martinez a couple of scrambles. Of like, I never really know how much that stuff is called. unless If it's like an option play, you can tell. But I think he calls his own number a little bit more in the second half there. Ramir Johnson was a major contributor in yeah. this one. Yeah. They did a good job of getting him plenty of touches. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's not like this Nebraska offense doesn't have the playmakers. They got, with, him, they got him open, too. They got him in spaces where he could make plays. Yeah, even with Gabe Irvin now hurt, between Johnson and Samori Toure and Omar Manning, they should have the weapons to punish any vulnerability in opposing defense. And I will repeat... Michigan's corners are still really bad. And the other thing is, it's also very Scott Frost, Nebraska, to point that out, because, yes, they do have the weapons, and they do a good job of getting them. So even with Gabe Irvin hurt, they were able to have the weapons to do this. But what if they had Wandale Robinson still? But remember, though, that's not really because of anything Frost did. He no. transferred home to be closer to sick family. I know, yes, but it's I just, it is, it's it's just a, kind of a... It's, it's, a, a what, it's the bad luck Brian meme, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I know it's not always <laughs> luck. I know a lot of that yeah. bad luck Scott Frost makes, but that's one yeah. of those situations where also some legitimately shitty things do happen to them. Yes, that's... <laughs> that are not in his control. Fair to say, and, you know, the dis- and then we go to the, game, to the decisive play of the game, really, which is Martinez already got the first down... Fighting for extra yardage. He said he ended up saying after the play, I thought the play was over. And I'm watching the replay. I'm like, dude, you're still churning your legs. He was, like, upright. Yeah, you're, uh, like, you're... you're he standing. wasn't going to the ground, even. Yeah, and so you you got to have the sense at some point to wrap up and stop fighting for more yards if they don't blow the whistle. That's the other thing is if the refs didn't blow the whistle, play's not over, bud. Yep. For a senior quarterback to make that kind of mistake. So, again, I don't want... How many times have we said this in a game? about Adrian Martinez, for a senior quarterback to make that kind of mistake at this part of a game is just... Yeah. Um, and so, I, I guess the only other thing I would say here is, as far as the play calling for Nebraska goes, when they when they throw out these beautifully designed pass plays, it's like, All right, well, why didn't you call that earlier? Well, I've now learned enough about the X's and O's part of it that the answer is almost certainly, well, they didn't call it earlier because it wouldn't have worked. 
You have to establish tendency, establish base plays, and then once, ideally, if your base plays are working a little bit, the defense has to pay attention to them, and then you call constraints off of it. Michigan State's current offensive system does this extremely well. Their last offensive system was terrible at it, and it pissed me off to no end because they would dive into the line relentlessly and never call play action or or quick pitches or anything to account for the defense clogging up the interior. It was infuriating, but anyway, that's another topic. So the Michigan side of this, they certainly were prepared for the game. They came out much steadier. Um, Again, Harbaugh showed a little bit of a tendency to go for it in smart situations. They counterpunched once Nebraska made their adjustments after halftime. And down the stretch, they put the ball in their best player's hands on offense. That's Blake Corum. And he won the game for him. <clears throat> I think a lot of the, you know, the early, you know, ground and pound stuff that they were doing did contribute a lot to the fact that they could still move the ball late in the game. As Nebraska's defense has, um, who is, is that Janander still? Uh, DC? Yeah. I think so, yeah. He's done a really good job this year, especially in the second half. I mean, you saw it firsthand against Michigan sure State. Did. Just they tighten the screws. And as they tighten the screws against Michigan in the second half, they were still able to move the ball, if not quite as effectively, effectively enough to get to the field goals. And I think part of that was because they, they did establish a lot of ground and pound early, get get the advantage in time of possession, get some fatigue on the, the, the defense. They did a good job to get Dalen Baldwin involved, too. I've kind of been waiting to see, like, this guy's like a physical specimen. He catches damn near everything that's thrown at him. When are they going to make him a bigger part of the offense? Today was the day, probably because they had no other choice with Roman Wilson hurt, but I almost wonder, if, look, you don't want to lose a guy like Ronnie Bell, certainly not for the season, but now with him and Roman Wilson out, they've had no choice but to identify which of their receivers can step up, and you see it's gonna, it should be, in my mind, Cornelius Johnson, Dalen Baldwin, and kind of a 1-1-A thing in the pass game, and that should be the line share of their targets. Yeah, and the other thing is you mentioned that, like, well, at some point during this game, I actually was paying attention to a little bit of this game, but it was only a couple hours after this ended that I decided that uh, that champagne could really only be healed if I blasted thousands of watts of Steely Dan into the air a couple <laughs> blocks north of Memorial Stadium. Sleep will not heal you, champagne. Only the Steely. <laughs> so, that is the only option for you. From a little bit of a big picture perspective, then, I, I don't know how much credit Harbaugh gets for these two games because it's true that neither Nebraska nor or Wisconsin was ranked. But these are all it's also consecutive difficult places to play on the road against a couple of really salty defenses, you know, offenses that can be spotty at best, bad at in Wisconsin's case. But those are still difficult places to win. The question remains though, are you gonna beat a team you're not supposed to? And I get that yes, technically they were an underdog at Wisconsin, but that was a ridiculous line. I still don't understand that one. Um, so anyway. Man, I wonder if you know, if there's a good spot later in the year, if Nebraska, if a really drunk Nebraska wants to call up a really drunk Texas and, you know, get get one of those, this is probably a bad idea, but we're really sad and drunk. Do you want to hook up for one more game? <laughs> They're both living their own Sisyphean existences right now. Oh, we'll get to Texas short. Nebraska didn't have it quite as bad as Texas did this week, but their whole season has been like this. Yeah, or, well, you know, to be specific, we will get to Texas in the non-con recap, which comes with the preview episode. Y'all are going to have to tune into that as well. So let's wrap up the Big Ten week that was Penn State 20, Iowa 23. 
these two fan bases have really showed their collective asses in both during the game and in the aftermath thereof. Everybody is not mad. They just think it's really funny. They just funny. think it's really funny that, you know, Iowa's crowd is booing injured Penn State players and some of them actually are hurt. And then actually some of them clearly are not hurt. But, you know, that's where it's oh, but then, that. Oh, but then, you know, it's still... It's still not really a classic thing to do. Oh, but then maybe somebody's coaches were also in on it, so that's crossing a line. Oh, but actually the coach you accused of doing that is a real class act, and it's actually, it's really unclassy of you to dare accuse this coach, who is a really good guy, of doing something so unclassy. So all the classic, all the accusations of, I mean, I always like to bring bourbon and cigars with me, like real good stuff when I go to these games and I'm being accused of being classless, especially I'm going to bring some cigars to the next Michigan basketball game I go to. Just in case I'm accused of being classless, I'm going to be like, well, there's three figures worth of very classy extra Maduro smoke. Uh, so anyway, uh, in, the, in the midst of two very childish fan bases going at each other over a very childish argument, I still don't know what it is about the Iowa defense that makes opposing quarterbacks turn into simpletons because even before he got hurt, Clifford threw two interceptions, and the second one should have been a touchdown. He had, I believe, Dotson with outside leverage, meaning if he throws the ball as, as a you know, fade to the corner of the end zone, it would have dropped in over his shoulder. The safety would not have had a chance to make the play on the ball. Instead, he throws it towards the post, the middle of the field, and it drops right into Jack Kerner's hands instead. And I'm like, it, Clifford knows that. Like he's he's played enough ball. He's got the sing, he's got the school record for touchdowns with this receiver. He's he ought to be able to see how he's running the route and where the defender is and the guy's open. Like what? It, it's a very basic mistake. I just don't get uh, again. It's, it's weird because Iowa doesn't really throw a lot of tricks at you. Like, they play the same cover, two almost all the time. In this situation, I think Kerner was playing a single high. But it, nonetheless, like, they're not exactly throwing, like, the Baltimore Ravens defense at you or anything. Like, there's, there's nothing here that you haven't seen before. Well, I'm about to talk about a big-time villain for Iowa fans, which, of course, could be literally anybody, okay? But in this case, it's Bill Connolly. The, the, the guy who does the advanced statistical profiles. Because, of course, they ref he refuses to rank Iowa number one because, of course, it's all his subjective stuff and not, and you know, a series George of very good so predictive... A, a series of very good predictive stuff that he does. Yeah, and also George is a way better team. <laughs> yeah. So he actually did say Iowa's post-game win expectancy versus Penn State was 71%, which is to say that you play that game again 10 more times, Iowa wins seven of it if it plays out the exact same way. Uh, but one of the things that he did mention is that, and, and with Illinois over the last two years, I've been paying a lot of attention to what is called turnover luck, right? Which is, there's creating turnovers, right? There's forcing fumbles, right? There's getting deflected passes. Then there's a matter of how many, and, and I'm d differentiating between deflected passes and you put yourself right in position for that, but it's like it tips off of a helmet yeah. at the line. It, it, a guy drops it. Okay, and turnover luck is the percentage of um, forced fumbles uh, in a neutral area of the line of scrimmage and uh, tipped passes that you recover. And Iowa's is unsustainable at this point. Um, looking for the exact figure, but I think that it was something along the lines of uh, their passes defense to interception rate as a, uh, as a percentage is about 38% which is 
astronomical. Unfathomably high, yes. Now, again, they do create a lot of those opportunities. And I'm not by any means saying they didn't deserve to be Penn State, but you're asking how they're getting a lot of these turnovers. Well, they're putting themselves in a lot of positions to make them. And also, things are bouncing for them. Yeah, you know, much is always made of the visitors' locker room at Kinnick being painted pink. Maybe they're, like, neglecting to mention that as part of the conditioning of the equipment, the home team insists on putting a brain slug from space or from uh, Futurama in every helmet. Yeah, no Because it's just, uh, man, I, I still understand how you make that counter. But anyway, there's also the fact that Clifford got hurt in this game shortly before halftime. And it's got to be said, James Franklin and his offensive staff did not have Saquon Roberson ready to play. 7 for 21 for 34 yards, two picks. Oh, my God. Was he worse than Art Sitkowski? On this day, yeah. Holy shit! Because he threw because of the receptions. And, yeah. Um, well, it wasn't for Art Sitkowski's lack of trying, but still. I know it, it's one thing. It's one thing for the backup quarterback to not have the same number of reps. That's understandable. He's not going to know the whole playbook. He's the backup for a reason. But Penn State's offensive line had like eight or nine false starts in this game. Almost all of them came after Roberson came in the game. And There's just something... Well, the booth was commenting on this, which is yeah. that it's obvious at that point that the line is not picking up his cadence, the yep. same way they did Clifford's. Exactly. Kinnick is a loud place, and eventually Penn State went to the thing where the guard looks between his legs and taps the center when it's time to hike the ball, and that's giving away the snap count a little bit, but it's better than false starting a half dozen times. I actually watched this really interesting about 15-minute long video, well, listen to it on my way back, that's uh, J.T. O'Sullivan has a whole channel on quarterback, quarterbacking, and he's explained like, Everything about why snap cadences are the way that they are, and that was one of the things that he that he talked about. He also talked about uh, when he he got to start for the 49ers and Mike March was their OC, and they went up to Seattle, and Mike March didn't believe in silent counts, <laughs> <laughs> so he got in the huddle and was just like, "Okay," and he says, "Like, look, you don't want to fire head coaches, but at a certain point." You gotta move the goddamn ball. So, like, so I just started putting in a silent count. And anyway, I I, I digress. Uh, it's it's also especially after watching that. Like, all all you had to do was say that to me, and I said like, yeah, he clearly has not been practicing with the ones enough to be functional. But there's that as it, a team. It also it took Penn State's coaches way too long to make that yeah. adjustment, though. And by the time they had. Iowa had built up momentum. It's got to be in Roberson's head at this point that, damn it, I can't get a yard against these guys. Um, so, like, I, honestly, I wonder if he kind of did the best that he could in that situation. Um, I don't know what Clifford's prognosis is going forward. They rule him out for the rest of the game pretty quickly. He was back, you know, in the jersey with no pads. you got to imagine line. that if, if Penn State's coaching staff isn't just terrible, which I really don't think they are, that Roberson comes out in his next game and looks a lot better. Yes. And that he'll look a lot better for the rest of the year. But it's just just incredible for him to have been, you know, for, for the whole offense to have been this poorly prepared to operate with him and for it to take so long to not really even adapt at all. So the, the one thing that you would see here for Penn State going forward is they do get a bye week here. So that's a little extra time to try to get Clifford back. Don't they get two bye weeks? That's the next point I was going to make, which is that, yes, even if they don't get Clifford back, Roberson will make his first career start against the Illinois Fighting Yeah, it'll be a good scrimmage because it's exactly like a scrimmage for the offense because you're not going to give up any points. Right, so a little bit more freedom to kind of make some mistakes. Holy shit, why don't I have any plans for that weekend? That's like the one weekend I don't have plans for. I will also 
point out here that Penn State's offensive playmakers didn't help him out. They had probably four or five drops of very catchable balls over the course of the day. Uh, and look, Penn State's defense re- played heroically. Um, they just couldn't hold up for almost an entire straight half on the field. And I can already see the Quitter comments, though, man. We're giving Penn State all the credit and Iowa none of it. <laughs> well, so I guess what the... I guess the the inevitable comment here is Iowa's defense does continue to get their hands on a ridiculous number of turnovers. And even though it's unsustainable, they're still doing it. In a 12-game season, like four or five games of unsustainable turnover look is a huge portion of the year. Well, not to mention, I'll say this for Iowa, they're, they're having the same sort of unsustainable turnover look as Illinois did two years ago. And Illinois went 6-7. and seven. Iowa's 6-0. and no, I don't think they're losing out. So, yeah, probably not. And So I'm giving as, them the great compliment of saying they are better than the best Lovey Smith Illini team. And as much as I still don't think Petrus is a quarterback who puts stuff in the trophy case for you, if you get my meaning, he did make a couple of big-time throws late in the game, and they had a couple of really nicely-timed play calls. The, the, the dagger touchdown to Reganey was a beautiful you know, rollout, throwback across the field. He's wide open. So Petrus executes that kind of play just fine, where it's a single read and he can just throw the ball where it needs to be. Um, it's just, you know, you don't really want him making decisions or trying to move around in the pocket. So yeah, I'm going to say one thing that's going to get Iowa fans back in my corner and one thing that will repel them all the way to the other one, and that is Iowa's now the prohibitive Big Ten West favorite. It's hard to imagine them not winning the division, even though I think they'll lose to Wisconsin. Because <laughs> they're going to lose here somewhere. I'm, right? I'm, I am serious about that. I think Wisconsin is the team with by far the best chance to beat them. We'll see what happens at quarterback if they, if their offensive line gets their, their shit together. But it kind of depends Wisconsin, on... I think, has the best defense in the Big Ten from a yards per play perspective. Iowa, now, Iowa has made more noise on defense by getting more turnovers, but Wisconsin's restricts you from doing more on a yards per play basis. And against... Uh, I think Wisconsin is so good at limiting what you can do at the line of scrimmage that Iowa's going to actually have a hard time getting time of possession because you got to get first downs. That game's going to be hideous. Oh, yeah. Here's the only Or as Iowa fans would call it, beautiful, quality football. Yeah. The only question I have, and that's what I'm going to look up right now, is how much time is left until that game happens. All right, so that's not until... Damn, October 30th is going to be a hell of a weekend. That's Iowa, Wisconsin. That's Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Penn State. Illinois And that, too. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. So there's a couple weeks left, basically, is what I'm saying, for Wisconsin to get their quarterback situation straightened out. Folks in the house were asking, so what? what's going to bring you down here three weeks from now? Is it a, a business thing or just for fun? And I said... Well, that last thing, but the complete opposite of it. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. Got tickets yet? But uh, that being said, it won't matter if Iowa beats them that much, or if Wisconsin beats them that much, because Wisconsin's already got two Big Ten losses. I think Iowa has a lead that they are not going to relinquish at this point because they would need to lose. I mean, they would they would need to lose two, and also a head to head. Yeah, well, no, if they lose to Wisconsin, then Wisconsin, then they only need one more. Yeah, well, but, yeah, but I mean, I'm saying right, right, right. They, lead, they need to lose two and a head-to-head, so. Yeah, but so, 
Iowa's schedule the rest of the way is their division schedule. They played the, that was their crossover that they just yeah. finished. So, so are Wisconsin there two, are there two teams in this division that, that are really going to be absolutely Iowa? not. No, absolutely not. However, however, there is one team in this division that's kind of made their living off of beating Iowa, and for the most part, nobody else in the last few years. But we'll tune into the that. preview episode to find out. Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's off tackle and